Hello everyone, I am David Tamez and this is Lawrence Talks, a community podcast dedicated to introducing traditional philosophical topics and to exploring the ethical issues that arise from local events. On this episode, we speak to Bill Skepnik, attorney representing Justice Matters on the legal action to give voters the right to decide on jail debt, Reverend Joanna Herriter, pastor at Peace Mennonite Church and co-chair of Justice Matters Jail Alternatives Actions Committee, and Ben McConnell, lead organizer of Justice Matters. Our podcast is produced thanks in part to our partners at the Hall Center for the Humanities, IDRH, KU Philosophy Department, and the College of Liberal Arts and Sciences. As always, you can find us on iTunes, Spotify, and online at lawrencetalks.org. Thank you for listening and enjoy. Hello, everyone. I am David Tamez, and this is Lawrence Talks. As many of you know, Lawrence Talks is more than a philosophy podcast. It's also a podcast dedicated and interested in exploring the issues of justice and ethics in our community of Lawrence, Kansas. Given all that, we thought it was best and it was common sense for us to reach out to a local organization dealing with a with a particular issue in our in our county and in our city, and uh, that organization is Justice Matters. And they've taken on a number of issues, but I think one of the first ones they, they've uh, tackled is, uh, or continue to, to take on, is our the jail issue and the expansion of our, of our county jail. I am joined by a few representatives of Justice Matters, and I, would, I will have them introduce themselves. My name is Ben McConnell. I'm the lead organizer and staff member with Justice Matters. I'm Joanna Herriter. I serve as pastor at Peace Mennonite Church, and I'm the co-chair of the research team on jail alternatives with Justice Matters. And I'm Bill Skepnick. I'm a lawyer uh, in Lawrence. I represent Justice Matters in the pending lawsuit, uh, Justice Matters and several individuals and organizations in the pending lawsuit uh, to compel the county to submit the issue of the jail to the voters before um, actually issuing bonds. Thank you all for for joining me today, and thank you for all the work that that you've been doing on on this. Thanks thanks for having us. And to begin, I I, I thought, since this is a podcast about justice and ethics, among other things, we'd start with talking about your organization, um, Justice Matters, and especially the justice part. Um, So what are the, what are the, guiding principles that your organization follows, um, and what are the values that that you try to promote in the work you do? Um, I, I think I'll take that, David. Again, it's Ben with Justice Matters. Um, the We're a faith-based organization, so the work that we do is really an expression of the um, uh, scriptural uh, imperative to do justice. Uh, just to help the people kind of grasp what that looks like and where that's grounded, uh, we lift up um, a text uh, called Micah 6 8. Um, it's found in the uh, Torah, the Hebrew scriptures, um, or what Christians would call the Old Testament. It says, What does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love mercy? And to walk humbly with your Lord. And so basically there's three tenets that we see Micah, the prophet, encouraging people of faith to consider um, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. And so when 
in modern expressions of faith in terms of churches, synagogues, and mosques. We we do that faithfulness work um, very diligently. We come together with worship. We we have uh, formation classes for young people. We do Bible studies, um, encouraging people to have a relationship with God and walk with God. So faithfulness is something we do quite well. Mercy ministries, um, kind of the paramount story of that, or the uh, the best example of that is the Good Samaritan example, where you help an, an individual in crisis who's been left for dead and robbed by the side of the road. It's a parable that Jesus told. Our churches do that kind of mercy ministry quite well, too, um, with food pantries and clothes closets and um, uh, hosting families for family promise. So churches in modern synagogues and mosques in modern day do both faithfulness and mercy ministries quite well. But there's a long history of um, God's people um, doing justice work, uh, looking at, you know, what the rulers and the empires of their day were doing, particularly to uh, the vulnerable, uh, the the orphan, the widows. Um, we see that from the earliest days of Moses confronting the Pharaoh over the slavery um, of, of the Israelites in Egypt, all the way through uh, to Martin Luther King, um, the most modern day uh, prophet that we we kind of see. Um, and so Justice Matters is a vehicle to bring congregations together and address uh, empires and issues of injustice affecting the vulnerable in their local communities. And so it's seen that most congregations do mercy and faithfulness very well. Um, and the absence of us really having a voice around issues of justice, that's the reason Justice Matters was created. And um, so that's what's that's what grounds us and that's what that's what brings us together. Great. Thank you, Ben. Um, and so, uh, so many of your officers or, or members are uh, represent different faiths or different, not necessarily different faiths, but different churches in the area. Um, what prompted you all coming together or how did that how did that come about? Well, honestly, uh, Verdell Taylor um, at St. Luke AME and Gary Teske, who was a Lutheran pastor at Trinity Lutheran, uh, were sort of the um, early uh, uh, people that showed an interest in the idea of doing this work. And then that expanded to like a gang of eight uh, pastors, uh, Father Mike Scully at at um, St. John's, the Evangelist Catholic Church, Justin Jenkins at Velocity, John McDermott at Morningstar. Um, let's see, there's several others that I'm missing that uh, that sort of the Gary Teske and Verdell and I had a cup of coffee and I told them a little bit about the idea of justice ministry that was going on in Topeka. And um uh, they didn't seem very interested, on it, honestly, and so I thought that was kind of the end of it. And then a week later, they both individually reached it back out to me and said, "Hey, that's a really good idea. We need that in Lawrence. Let's get together." And um, then we started. That was in the uh, probably the spring of 2014, and then we started to bring pastors together and um, had our first kind of launch in November of 2000 and. and uh, 
And what, uh, so was, was the jail expansion issue the first one that you, uh, that your organization took on or were there um, other considerations that, that were play when you were coming, forming, forming your group? Um, and, and if so, if it was the first one uh, or uh, it, I think it did end up being your first one. It, and if that's the case, um, what specifically about the issue caused you to take it on? I'll take that question and pass the torch over to Joanna to talk more about the jail particularly. But just as a point of clarification, Justice Matters isn't a single issue organization. It's designed, again, to be a vehicle for people to express their faith in doing justice. And so, um, uh, you know, we've worked the first issues to your question, David, that surfaced what were mental health affordable and affordable housing and uh, uh, what later became defined as childhood trauma. And we had three separate committees working on those three issues, uh, which we um, have addressed and have concrete, uh, made concrete impact in. But the mental health got tied to the jail expansion by the county commissioners, um, pro basically from day one. And that uh, by connecting those two things together and forcing us to come to some decision about how we felt about jails, that that almost um, required us as people of conscience to um, understand what's what would it mean to get mental health and expand a jail. And that's where the Jail Alternatives Committee was born. It was out of the county's move of tying those two things together which they projected to us um, dating back to 2015. But our earlier um, issues were uh, affordable housing, mental health, and childhood trauma. In addition to the jail, we're presently um, working on homelessness and um, racial disparities and out-of-school suspensions in our schools. So again, just trying to reinforce that uh, we're not a jail no organization or a criminal justice reform organization. We're just addressing this issue at this time and place because it's just an expression of our faith tradition of doing justice. Great. Thank, thank you, Ben. Um, and I guess I, I want to get into uh, a little bit about um, the history of this, of this issue. And, but before we do that, I, I, um, I guess I want to turn to, bill a little bit because this issue is uh so uh, we've heard i think over the last few years um especially over the last few years it's always i think it's always been an issue but it's been a growing issue we people many people know about the uh the issues with our prison population um but this is a unique uh situation or a unique problem with with uh that takes a look at our jail population and and um and that system itself um, so, what is the what are the main uh, differences between those two those two issues, David? I think that's an important question. As you know, as I've in the last um, month or so, as I've talked to friends and people I know about this issue, and it's just come up. You know, a lot of times I I'm asked, well, you know, prison is for you know it's that's it, an it's an important thing to to have prison so that people can be punished and serve their punishment. And um, so I think it's important that we that we sort of distinguish between the two issues of prison and jail. Um, 
prison, there is a distinct prison issue in the United States. Um, the United States right now and for some time now has had a higher percentage of its population in prison than literally any country in history. Um, and so it's it, there is an issue that we have right now, I think a problem that we have right now with our um, criminal justice system and, and the rate of incarceration uh, related to it. But, but that's not really what we're talking about here. What we're talking about here is the jail. And the jail is a place where we hold people uh, pending uh, the outcome of their uh, of their criminal cases. Uh, so people that are in jail are being held before trial, during a time that they're presumed to be innocent and have not been found guilty and are not being punished, such that one can be held in jail um, pending a trial in a case, be acquitted during the trial, and then walk free. Uh, but have lost the time that they were in jail. So, you know, so the issue here is who do we have in jail? Why are they there? Are they properly in jail? Are we fairly and justly um, uh, holding people in jail? And, and I think then there's a more fundamental utilitarian question uh, uh, for the community, how much do we want to spend um, to, to have people in jail pending um, resolution of their criminal cases? And do we have, uh, I guess, the statistics of what sort of uh, crimes or um, the, the sort of things that people are being put in jail for that um, j just, just to get the basic facts out, out there? It's a wide range of things, um, and and frankly, uh, the way our um, pretrial detention system works is that typically uh, a a pretrial release bond is set, and if the person can pay the bond, then they can obtain pretrial release from jail pending their uh, disposition of their criminal case. If they can't afford it, then they stay in jail until trial. I don't know if recently, um, if you if you saw a couple of days ago, days ago there was an article about some 18-year-old kid who was arrested uh, for having an, a loaded AR-15 just off Massachusetts Street. Um, and apparently the police thought that he was in the process of going in to shoot. And they, there was some kind of an altercation. They arrested him. I, I mean, obviously, I don't know the merits of it. That's going to be ultimately for a court to decide. But that is a circumstance in which there is a very dangerous, or if, if the police are right about what they're saying, a potentially dangerous person in a very dangerous situation. That person was released on a $50,000 bond. So, so a, a, a surety company put up $50,000 to obtain that kid's release from jail. Um, and he's now free. You can have other crimes, uh, relatively minor crimes. Let's say by example, or for example, shoplifting. Someone accused of um, stealing a videotape, um, you know, from a, from a store um, or, a, or a CD. 
that person can be put into jail. And if they can't post a relatively small bond, maybe even a thousand dollars or $500 bond, um, they're going to stay in jail until their case is resolved. Um, you know, certain driving related cases end up, you know, people end up in jail driving without a driver's license, for example, and they could end up in jail and, and be in jail for long periods of time pending resolution of their case simply because they can't post a bond. And I want to speak to a little bit about that too, uh, Bill, because you, you also uh, advocate for uh, bond injustice or bail injustice. Um, what sort of uh, issues are, uh, are involved in that particular uh, transaction? Well, um, you know, we have to think about what we're accomplishing and whether what we're doing is fair. Um, the, the problem is, take my example of the kid with the AR-15 and some other kid who um, shoplifts a, a CD, music CD. Now, why? what's our reason for holding someone in jail pending a resolution of their criminal case? Um, I, I happen to think philosophically it should be um, there should only be one person, one one reason for holding somebody in jail, and that reason should be uh, to protect the public from someone who's potentially dangerous. And so, if you if you look at this dangerous quotient, then you know what sort of danger to the population does the accused shoplifter pose, as opposed to the risk of danger to the population from the kid who was found off Massachusetts Street with a loaded AR-15. Um, you know, and I, I think the answer is pretty obvious. Um, but in our current system, one of them, the one that I think poses the, um, obvious risk of danger has been released. And the other one who poses, I, I can't really foresee any risk of danger or much risk of danger is being held in jail. So, so if you're talking about, um, uh, what, what, what this really adversely impacts against is is poverty. And so we're holding people in jail who are poor, and we're allowing people out of jail who have wealth. And so there's a disparate treatment within our criminal justice system between people who have money and people who do not have money. And I think that's a I think that's a, a serious criminal justice problem. David, this is Joanna. I was just going to say, in relation to the question of who's in jail, uh, for one, it's 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 rather surprisingly difficult to get straight answers on that question. The sheriff's department does um, put out some reports, but most most people actually who go in have multiple charges, and it can get really murky trying to sort through that. But we, one clear thing to look at is the recent decline in the jail population. We're currently under capacity at the Douglas County Jail right now because many um, inmates have been released due to COVID-19 fears, people who were, you know, they're concerned about the transmission um, of the virus in the jail. And so they were able to release significant numbers of people. And we can assume that they're not releasing people who they deem a distinct threat to the community, which is a pretty clear answer to the question of um, 
that many, many of the people sitting in jail are not there because they're a threat to the community using the um, the distinctions that Bill was just talking about. And then to pick up on Joanna's point, um, Douglas County is not the only uh, jail that has been, uh, during the, the past several weeks, releasing people. Jackson County has released, I think, well over 100 people from its jail. Um, I, I, read, I read an article about... Um, uh, Los Angeles uh, County and Los Angeles County in California has released thousands of people from jail. Um, there, there are literally thousands of people in jail who are not dangerous. And when we come to a time like this, where um, you know the truly extraordinary events are happening that force us to recognize realities, we we realize that we're holding. In jail, we're, we're holding people who are not a, do not pose a danger to society, and and and, and this isn't just it, the, the consequences of what we're doing are very very significant and impact these people in terrible ways, and I, I think we should talk about that a little bit. Yeah, and we and uh, and we should because I. I like that you're because I, I didn't mention this at the beginning. And I don't know if Ben has told you this. I I'm a philosopher, um, and I recognize myself or identify primarily as someone who's a consequentialist, a utilitarian. So I really like the language that that you're using here, Ben, because I think it is important. Utilitarianism was used historically um, as a way of reforming the uh, the justice system in the early 1900s. At least that was the intention. I wanted to. I guess highlight another issue that you, you guys are focusing on, the issue of homelessness. How related is the issue of, of our uh, growing uh, houseless population to the issue of or being held in, in jail? Is, is there any uh, relation or correlation there? Well, it's not, you know, lost on anyone that our homeless shelter is literally next door to the jail, fairly far away from the center of our town. So that says something to the um, the way I think a lot of people think of um, the houseless population. There's been some efforts recently to um, get the city and part of, you know, it's a county jail. There are city ordinances that affect the population of the county jail. Um, but there's been efforts recently to get the city to stop prosecuting um, people who are quote unquote illegal sleeping Basically, uh, homelessness is criminalized in many respects, and there have been a lot of citizens encouraging the decriminalization um, of the types of activities that people are forced to do as they are um, homeless. And, and this sort of, uh, Joanna, you were speaking to earlier about response in, uh, to COVID-19 uh, that our jails have decided to take a seriously serious look at uh, who's in their jail and whether they pose a, uh, a problem to our society or to our communities by being released. Um, and this sort of does a, the way that they've sort of cut down on the uh, who's how many people are held there to where they're now at uh, below capacity. Um, this seems to do away with one of their major points in, in the favor of jail expansion, namely that the population or the number of people being held there was growing drastically. And so it needs an, an immediate response. Is, is that the case that, that that sort of frame of that sort of argument, it kind of 
is nullified by their recent response to COVID-19. Right. We've we've been told repeatedly by county officials, um, particularly starting with the Prop, Prop 1 campaign, that they have already lowered the jail population as much as they can safely lower it, that everyone there is has to be there um, for public safety reasons. And nobody, also to Bill's point earlier, we've been told repeatedly that no one is in our jail because of their inability to pay bonds. Um, but all you have to do is sit in, um, sit in on a court session of, of first hearings to hear the judge give people, um, you know, tell them their bail amounts and hear people tell the judge, I can't afford that. Um, for things like driving with a suspended license, um, to know that that is not true. And yes, so it does absolutely prove um, that that's disingenuous for the county to have been saying that it's impossible to lower, to safely lower um, the population. With the, I think our, um, the jail funding trying to be pushed through at the same time that we're realizing we have a, a crisis in our community with people who are homeless, um, in some ways, it, it highlights the fact that um, of where the community's fiscal priorities are. Um, LA, when they recently released nonviolent members, it was estimated that 40% of them were homeless. So we're in a situation where if the county could put some of the money that they're trying to use to expand the jail to some actual services for people in the community, it could not only lower the jail population, but reduce crime and support people in our community and having a better quality of life. When, when I, I became interested in this issue a, a little after, um, Ben and Joanna, uh, I, I first became in, interested in this issue uh, at the time of the of the vote uh, in 2018. And following that vote and following the voters' rejection of the expansion to the jail, I went down to the town hall meeting that was held at the fairgrounds in the big um, in the big building down there at the fairgrounds, mm -hmm. and just sat there and took notes for a couple of hours that night. Um, and watched person after person after person get up and and talk to the county commission about the unfairness of putting people in jail for being poor. And I've been practicing law now for 42 years, and it had just never really dawned on me during that time how unfair our, our, our bail bond system is. Uh, one of the people that stuck out in my mind was a was a graduate student at KU who took the time to come down and um, and went up and told the county commissioners about her experience as a member of a of a criminal jury in Douglas County that year and uh, and and I can't recall that what the case was about or even if she even said it but but she said that the the defendant in the case uh, had been acquitted by the jury. And then they found out that he had been held in jail for seven months pending the trial in that case. And, um, and you know, then, by the way, this ties in with the underfunding that we do of our, of 
of our indigent defense uh, system. Uh, and so there are a lot of these um, uh, people that are charged with crimes that really have a hard time obtaining timely representation. But think about that. What, what happens to somebody who, um, who gets put in jail for a week, let alone seven months? Um, what happens to their job? What happens to their apartment? What happens to their car payment? What happens to whatever other payments they're making? What happens to the support of their children? I mean, these people are severely impacted by, um, by the decision that we're making to hold them in jail for long periods of time oftentimes, but, but even for shorter periods of time, uh, we're economically and socially impacting these people. And I think we're also uh, destroying the fabric of, um, of our system. Uh, we're creating cynicism in our system about whether we truly have a justice system and whether, what, you know, what, the, what the real purpose of it is. I think, it, I, think the, I think the cost is enormous. And what's the, what are the impediments? Because uh, a lot of the things that you're referring to are uh, facts that people can, can acknowledge. They're, they're objective facts. Um, so what are the, some of the, uh, the impediments that are getting in the way of, of reform? Who wants to take a shot at that? Well, I mean, I can just say from a very sort of big picture view, the primary impediment has been the county's insistence that the only way we can address the problem of overcrowding is to build more jail cells. You know, when you go into, when you see a problem and you have a predetermined solution that shuts off your willingness to openly consider and put resources towards another solution. So there have been opportunities and there's currently opportunities for the county to um, really do some good research, have, have uh, for example, the Vera Institute come in and look at all these questions we're asking, who's in jail? Why are we there? How can we help fewer people be there? Um, but the, the county has not looked at the problem as clearly as I think they should have because they have just been angling for building a bigger jail from the very beginning, and that's prevented them. Um, they've, taken, they've done some small pieces of what they would call um, jail alternatives and reform, but they haven't really tackled the big systemic issues because they've just been viewing this jail expansion that they want as the solution to the problem. And are, are there other uh, reasons that they offer for for the jail expansion besides that uh, that they were over capacity? Because that's no longer the case. So, is there was there any other uh, reasons that they that they could offer for expanding the jail, or at least focusing on on it the way they have? There are some improvements in the jail that they would like to make, which I don't think anybody has or would necessarily argue with in terms of um, added classroom, needing additional um, classroom space uh, in terms of, I mean, the, the heating system needs to be upgraded. There, there are some practical things like that that they um, want to address in addition to adding the cells, but the bulk, the, the primary bulk of the price tag that's on this right now and the work that's gone into it is all based around 
adding capacity, adding cells so that we have the capacity to lock up more people in our community. Okay, because those those other, uh, I guess, additions seem, like as you said, uh, understandable and maybe uh, reasonable. And um, so is there some uh, compromise between what they want to accomplish and and I guess what uh, what you you all want to want to accomplish is there something that uh, some place in uh, not necessarily in the middle uh, because that's uh, <laughs> that's always the sort of uh, belief that people have that there's some nice middle part but that's not necessarily always the case but is there um, some way that there or some compromise position that that could be reached right so. The proposal from the county for the jail expansion project originally included two pieces, one being um, what's called the South Tower, which is the addition of the cells, the extra jail cells. And the second piece being what they're calling a step-down unit, which would be more of the space for the rehabilitative programs, uh, work release, housing, classroom space, Etc. And I, we have Justice Matters as an organization has never taken issue with the need for um, the step down unit for that extra space for for the programming and the classes. But what's happened somehow in the negotiations with the um, with the construction company and the architect is now it's actually the step down unit that has been thrown out of the plans, the current plans that they're looking at don't include that piece of the project anymore. Mm. Um, so, so, you know, our hope is that you want to, you want to get the jail population down as much as possible first. Right. And then you can determine if an expansion is really needed rather than just assuming that we're going to need to be locking up more and more of our citizens and starting with the expansion of jail cells. You know, as a, a, the, the, um, this jail, 2018 jail issue is probably the first time I've ever voted against public spending. Um, I'm I'm an easy touch, especially for local um, local issues. Um, even though they have the most direct increase or impact on my tax bill, I I, I happen to think that building public goods um, in on a local level is a is a is what we should be doing. Mm-hmm. Um, I voted against this because. It's not a public good. I, it is, or if it is a public good, it's the worst kind of public good. Um, you know, we, it is the, it is the, the thing that we, we ought to least want to do. We, we should only have people held in jail in Douglas County under, under extraordinary circumstances that require that they be held uh, to keep us safe. And um, I'm, I, I'm not persuaded that our system um, recognizes that. And Bill, you mentioned earlier that uh, you would uh, sort of advocate that the decision for bail 
uh, be rely on whether that person is a is a danger to their community. Um, what is, what is the current uh, I guess method of of determining bail, and so and what are the the issues that are often considered if it's not if it's not what you suggest? I don't actually hold myself out as an expert on this because I don't do that much criminal work. I've done some in the past, but I I don't really handle the kinds of cases that we're talking about here. So I, so in terms of the nuts and bolts, don't hold me too strictly to what I'm going to tell you. Okay. But the general idea is that the two, that there are two purposes for, uh, for requiring the posting of a bond. One is this issue of dangerousness that we've been talking about. And the other is to assure the person, uh, comes to court, you know, when their case is called. So attendance at the court is a, is another reason to do it. Um, in in as a practical matter, um, the the district attorney's office in Douglas County um, makes a recommendation uh, for what they think is an appropriate pretrial bail uh, amount, and um, and the court then considers it and accepts it or rejects it. My, my suspicion is that over a long period of time, um, you know, for certain crimes, uh, for or certain charges, certain, you know, bail bond amounts are set. And it's sort of pigeonholed that way, and it goes by rote. Um, and that um, both the district attorney's office and the courts have sort of fallen into just sort of the habit of doing this because it's the way it's always been done. Mm. Um, and I think it, I think it needs to be re-examined um, as you can tell. Right. Uh, but I think the, I think the, 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 the first place it ought to be re-examined is in our district attorney's office. The district attorney uh, doesn't just represent uh, district attorney represents everybody. The district attorney represents in in a sense, the interest of the of the person who's charged with the crime, and uh, and the district attorney should be um, making decisions on these issues that are in the interests of the people of Douglas County, and that means everybody and in the interests of justice. And I'm not sure that's happening. Yeah, it's really not a matter of getting the system right. It's the fact that the entire concept of bail bond is prejudiced against people who have less economic means. And so as Bill pointed out in his example, wealthy people, even if the bails are set quote unquote appropriately with a higher bail for a more serious threat, if you're rich enough, you can still be out of jail, which is as much a problem as the fact that poor people get stuck in jail. So the whole system, um, in my mind, needs to be abolished. It's not possible to reform it because the entire premise of paying money to get out of jail is inherently unjust and biased. I don't think it could be better said than that. And, and, and uh, as, I, as we sort of um, bring our conversation to a close here, I wanted to get, uh, get the next steps uh, out on the table, at least for uh, voters and citizens, because as you all said, in 2018, the voters voiced their opinion, um, and that seems to have been at least ignored, um, and is actually trying to also trying to be bypassed because 
uh, it seems like the bond that they're trying to uh, have uh, created for for this expansion is not going to be. They're trying to push past, past an election or a vote on on that bond. Um, so, what as citizens can we can we be doing? Well, let me let me first comment comment upon where we are in in that, and then let me maybe Ben or Joanna in terms of what we can be doing. Um, the uh, I was a I was a citizen in Douglas County in 1994 when um, we approved a sales tax issue to build the current jail. I voted for that, and I, I think yeah, I think it overwhelmingly won support. Um, the, the The county is now claiming that that vote in 1994, forever and a day. Um, authorizes um, the county to issue bonds to support additions to the jail, um, and I don't, I don't agree. I don't think that's what I voted for in 1994. I don't think it's what very many people voted for in 1994. Nor do I think it's what the laws of Kansas contemplate um, us doing when we vote for things like that. So. I, you know, I, I think, you know, we've been focusing on the criminal justice issue, but I mean, there's, a, there's another distinct group of people who oppose what the county is trying to do, and that is people who are um, advocates for our democratic process. Hmm. And I think that um, one of the things that people need to be concerned about is why would the county be so transparently attempting to bypass the the will of the voters as expressed in 2018 and I think that um, they need to come in they need to come out and explain to us why they would bypass us if they think that the that that the people of Douglas County will support this issue in 2020 I don't understand why they are not willing to uh, enable the, the people to do that. And, um, and I think that's something else that needs to be addressed. Yeah, so according to um, the Kansas legal statute, the, the ways that the county would be, um, could legally issue these bonds for jail construction, they would have two options. One would be to just put it on a ballot, as Bill is suggesting, but they don't even have to go that far. They also could simply issue public notice, which is a, a formal term. It doesn't just mean that they let the public know, but they issue a formal notice, which would be printed in the Lawrence Journal World. And that triggers a period of time during which citizens have the right to circulate um, a petition that would force the issue onto the ballot. And so what the, the legal action that we're pursuing would require of the county is that they take one of those two options. And we expect that the option that they would choose of those two is to publish notice. And when they, when they choose to do that or are forced by the courts to do that, then we as citizens will have about a 30-day window to collect um, a particular number of signatures, it'll be approximately 2,500 signatures. So what Justice Matters is doing right now, while Bill's doing all the hard legal work, is we're trying to set the groundwork to be able to collect those petition signatures when we gain the right to do so. 
And one thing that people can do, um, anyone who is willing to sign the petition when it becomes available should text the word democracy, democracy to 33777. So the number is 33777. And everyone who texts democracy to that number, they'll be asked a few contact information questions. And then we have um, a database of folks that we will then go back to to collect signatures from once we have the right to circulate the petition. Well, Bill and Joanna, um, there's plenty of issues that we are leaving on the table here. Um, and definitely we should uh, have a follow up on on. Uh, many of the many of them that were raised, um, but I want to thank you both for uh, for joining me today and for the work that you've been doing. Thank Thanks, you. David. And uh, again, as Joanna said, it, you can text democracy to three three seven 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 if you want to at least do your part in in on this on this uh, issue. Thank you all for listening, and we'll see you all next time.